Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just pray that you open our hearts and our mind to your words today and you prepare our hearts to take it forward into the week with us. In your name we pray, amen. Today's reading is from Micah 6, 1 through 12. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful waste? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Now, before I begin the sermon, I have to make a quick uh, follow-up announcement from Ashley. We have a stealth youth graduate in our midst. Adam, would you stand up and get your round of applause, please? <laughs> and the diaconate will also be making sure that you get your envelope. I was just conferencing with Ashley in the back there. Uh, being stealth makes it hard for everyone in the church to know that you're part of the community, but we are really glad that you are, and so welcome, and, th and congratulations. Okay, so I have been this week preparing two sermons, this sermon and also a sermon for Chip Cop's installation this, uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock at Lanesville Church, and I encourage you, if you know Chip, if you've been blessed by Chip, to come and bless him at that installation service uh, and worship with him as, uh, as he becomes the pastor of that church. And in preparing for that, I was thinking back on Chip's sermons and thinking, well, what do I remember of Chip's preaching? And I realized I didn't remember any of Chip's sermons. And I thought, well, that's, that's disturbing. Then uh, I thought, well, I've uh, sat under some pretty good preachers. I've sat under Tim Keller. What sermons of Tim Keller's do I remember? And then I realized, I don't remember any of Tim Keller's sermons. Thought, that's pretty disturbing. And I thought, well, I've preached well over 200, maybe 300, 500 sermons. How many of my own sermons that I spent time preparing do I actually remember? None. So <laughs> hopefully you guys are done better than me. Uh, so I realized, you know what, as we're going through this series on race, as we're going through this difficult topic, it's really important that we recap, 
that we, that we lay out the trajectory that we're following in really simple terms. So if you wouldn't mind putting up the first slide. We are looking at this series over five weeks, and we're making some really simple points. The first point, even if you don't remember the sermon, was it's not okay to do nothing. Last week, Rob preached, and the, the, if you don't remember that sermon, that's okay. But the big point that Rob was making was this is not a new problem, right? Today's main point, which you're going to hear again and again and again, is the solution begins with faithful worship. The a solution begins with faithful worship. So you can take that slide down, and let's dig into this passage. Micah 6.6 6 is one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Nearly everybody knows it. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It's framed in the middle of a really interesting and dynamic and exciting passage. The one we read starting at verse 1 going all the way through to verse 12. It's a serious message embedded in a powerful literary form. And it's a lot of fun to unpack and to look at. Before we can look at the text, though, we need to take one more step back and understand what is a prophet. Micah is a prophet, but what is a prophet? Now, the easiest way to think of a prophet is the way we think of lawyers. There are two types of lawyers. They're the lawyers that prepare the contracts and mediate the contracts. And then they're the lawyers that litigate the contracts. They come and say, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. You didn't do what you agreed you would do. So there are two types of prophets. They're the prophets like Moses, who mediate between the people and God. And there we have the Mosaic law. And they're the prophets that we typically associate in the Old Testament, the prosecuting prophets who come and they convict the people. They say, you haven't been doing what's written in the contract, in the covenant. And of course, Micah is a prosecuting prophet. And this whole text is a prosecution, a covenant prosecution. Micah is coming to say, basically, let's check the terms of the covenant. Let's look at both parties. Let's see if we're both being faithful. Let's see if we're both doing it Right, and it's broken down into what is done often in the Hebrew Bible. It's a thing called a chiasm. It's used in other types of literature. Big fancy word that just means sandwich. And when you're eating a sandwich, what do you know? The bread isn't as important as what's in the middle. The filling is what counts. And it's true when you come across a chiasm in Hebrew text as well. This is the structure of the passage that we're reading. Yahweh is put on trial, and then Yahweh's defense is brought out. And then in the middle, there's a question, which is how do we respond? How do we exalt a faithful God? And it's literally verse 6a, dead smack in the middle. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And then sort of echoing out the, the layers of the sandwich, this is a triple-decker sandwich, our faithful behavior, what it would what would have worked in our behavior as a defense, and then us on trial. And we're going to look at it in these two parts, effectively. The trial and defense of Yahweh, and then the trial and defense or, of the people. 
The trial and the defense of Yahweh, and then the trial and defense of the people. So let's jump into that first section, verses 1 to 5. Now I'm going to read the first three verses again because they lay out the court situation where Yahweh and then later the people are put on trial. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has also got an indictment later against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And we see that this is being set up now for the people to bring their case against God. For the people to say how God has wearied them. And God sets this up and he says, look, I am going to be the accused. You can be the plaintiff. And let's set the mountains and the hills up as the, the jury, the one that's going to make the decision. There's a grand picture, higher than any high court we can possibly imagine. And of course, as soon as you bring in the hills and the mountains, you realize that this is not just some small, part-time, petty jury. This is a jury that's been around since the beginning of time. This is a jury that has walked through the history of the people, that has seen everything that's gone on. This is a jury that is not just jury, but witness. And so the case that the people have to make has to hold up to the veracity and the truth of this jury, which is completely familiar with the history. And then it goes on to present a very ironic case, right? The question is, tell me, O oh people, how have I wearied you? How have I burdened you? And we walk through these accusations, these steps, these things that God have done, and we try to see in them the case that's being made against God. It begins with, I brought you up out of the land of Israel, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. An interesting place to start. Verse 4a, I took you out of slavery in Egypt. Hmm, not feeling, uh, not feeling very burdensome, not feeling very wearisome. It sounds more freeing at this point. There's an irony going on here. We get to 4b. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, Moses was a prophet mediator. He was one who set up the covenant law. So he took them out of slavery into Egypt. He brought them to a place where he set up a covenant with them. He became their God and, he, and they became his people. They gave them a prophet to lead them. Miriam and Aaron are priests. Their role is one of intercessor. He gave them two people to act as intercessors between the people and between God to maintain and uh, sustain that practice of worship again this does not sound wearisome this sounds like blessing not cursing there's an irony in this passage this defense of Yahweh this accusation of what is your behavior being Yahweh and we see the faithfulness coming out in this and then we get to this really what to us may seem a little odd remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Now, if you know this story, it's at the end of the book of Numbers. And what happens is the king of Moab is concerned about the strength of 
the people, the Hebrews, they're becoming quite powerful. And he says, I've got to rain down a curse on these people. Find me a prophet that's connected to the gods. And he says, I know who, Balaam, we'll get Balaam. Rain down a curse on these people, Balaam. And God says to Balaam, no, you may only bless them. Rain down a curse on these people. No, you can only bless them. Now, the story is long and more complicated. But at the essence and the core of that story is the fact that no matter how much other people may try to see the people of Israel curse, God continually blesses them. And it is a story in the midst of that wilderness narrative which taps into all the other ways God has blessed them in that time. It points to the fact that through the wilderness experience, he provided them with water and with manna and with protection. And not only that, this whole journey was about preparation and readiness for moving into the promised land. And then it's finished with this little odd sentence here in verse 5b. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim is the last place the Israelites stayed in the wilderness side of the Jordan. And Gilgal is the first place they stayed on the other side when they'd moved into promised land. So Shittim to Gilgal is basically the movement from wilderness to promised land, the movement into the promised land. So the account that's being given to convict God the burden that he's put on his people is he took them out of slavery. He provided for them. He sustained them. He nurtured them. He protected them. He prepared them. And then he brought them into the promised land. And the response to us is supposed to be, oh, that's really not a very convicting case. In fact, quite the opposite. This speaks to God's eternal faithfulness. And it's not just, unfortunately, for the Israelites trying to make this case in this story. It's not just the mountains and the hills that know this. Every child in Israel knew these stories. This was the stories that they'd grown up hearing, the faithfulness of their God. They knew from young age that God had been faithful and was faithful and throughout history and in the now had worked to protect and to sustain and provide for them. So it's not just the mountains and the children and the hills that know that. Every child, every Israelite knew those stories. And so as they are reading this text, as Micah is presenting this to them, they are getting the story, oh my gosh, we're standing before a faithful God. History, the jury of the hills and the mountains, speaks to God's faithfulness. He has been faithful to his covenant. How have I responded? Now, I hope that you know from being at North Point, those of you who have been here for a long time, that the story of the Exodus, that grand narrative of the Old Testament, that delivery from slavery to promised land, is in fact a foreshadowing of the grand narrative of all of redemptive history. It's the big story that we're all part of. Rescued from slavery to the Egyptians, rescued from slavery to sin. Moses the prophet, Aaron and Miriam priests, Jesus Christ, the ultimate covenant mediator, mediated the covenant with his own blood. The Mosaic covenant points to the new covenant mediated by Christ. The rescue from slavery in Egypt points to, foreshadows, our delivery from sin. Aaron and Miriam, high priests, 
the, the initial, the first high priest, Jesus Christ, the high priest, the ultimate intercessor. Shittim to Gilgal, nothing but a foreshadow of the coming of the, of the new earth, new heavens, and our movement into glory. And our reminder that we are blessed rather than cursed even now in this wilderness experience that we are walking through. We are being prepared. We are being sanctified. We are being provided for. And we are being protected by the Lord as we walk from slaves to sin to sons and daughters of glory in the new heaven and the new earth. So as Israel stood there being confronted with their history and being asked by God, how did I weary you? How did I burden you? Before the hills and the mountains, what could they say? Nothing. Now, if Israel could say nothing, how much more can we, who know the big story, the full story of redemptive history, the story of Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, prophet, and high priest, the story of our delivery from sin, our slavery to sin, and that promise, that certain hope that we have in that movement into the new, coming, the new kingdom and the new earth because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to stand on. And that's the place you're supposed to be when you get to this part in the text. Oh my God, look at God. Look at God's work throughout history and look at God's work in the here and the now. The, the little blessings, the small protection, the, the ongoing preparation. He is the big God of history and the personal God of the here and the now. So then we move over to the trial and the defense of the people. Now we're going to do this in reverse because in the text, because of that chiasm structure, it begins with the piece where this is how you could, this is what it should have been, and it finishes with the trial, the accusation. So let's look at that trial and accusation piece first, which is really... Verses 9 through 12. It begins with the, uh, with the statement, The voice of the Lord cries to the city. The accusation is to the city. It is to the society. It is to the culture. It is not simply to the individual. This is a corporate accusation. See that in verse 9. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in that culture is guilty of doing the things which are systemically part of the problem. But it certainly means that the accusation is being meted by God to the entire city. Now we know there's at least, at the very, very least, there was one good person, and that was Micah. And he was doing what he was supposed to do. He's being a prophet, calling out what was going on. So let's look through each of the verses that God uses to indict this culture this society, this city at that time. Verse 10a. You treasure wickedness. They were honoring the things that are structured to create disparity. You use scant measure, deceitful weights, wicked scales. That's in 10b and verse 11. He's saying that your systems are set up to favor those who are in charge. Your rich are violent in their ways and they lie about it. That's verse 12. But the rich won't acknowledge why. So in other words, they lie about it. Do you see what's going on here? God is accusing them of honoring the things that are structured to create disparity. 
to be part of a system that's set up to favour those in charge, that their economic and their justice systems are weighted against the poor, that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, but the rich won't acknowledge why. And this is not the poor whining. This is an accusation being made by God to this culture, to this society, to this city. Now, the question we have to ask as we read this text is, does this describe our society? Does this describe our culture? Does this describe the city we live in? And if so, what should we as God's people be doing in response to Yahweh's faithfulness to us? What should we as people be doing in response to Yahweh's faithfulness to us? So now, to answer that, of course, we have to go back to the defense, the defense that should have been, what they should have been doing. And of course, this is actually the main point of this text. This whole interesting structure with two trials is really about setting up how faithful God is, pointing out the problems that are going on in, in the situation that they are in, the city, the culture, the society they're living in, and saying what their response should be. And they begin this process in verse 6b, the sec after the question is asked, with what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before the God on high? They list the things which are legitimate, which are found in the ceremonial law, which are not in any way obnoxious when you look at what Moses asked them to do in the covenant that was mediated. It begins with something really simple. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's exactly what you should be doing. That's exactly what is written in the law, in the Mosaic law. That's exactly what you should do. And so the question we need to ask is, well, well, hang on a second. That's not what it says in this text. It's saying that that's not right. And it's actually not, it's important for us to read this carefully. It's not saying don't do sacrifices. The problem here is that he's trying to push away from this idea that rote is enough, that some sort of rote appeasement activity is okay. Why is God upset? Not because of the behavior, but because of the hypocrisy. This is not a culture that has fully embraced who God is. In fact, it's very appropriate for them to be sacrificing uh, the, the, the calf that's here. If their lives were fully representative of that sacrifice, if they were living out what it meant to make that sacrifice, if that reflected their heart because they were also engaged in the things which are missing, which he's about to point out, that would be very right. Very, very right. And God makes this point in verse 7 by becoming ridiculous. There's a huge irony here. A, a 10,000 rams. 10,000 rams? No one even had that sort of wealth. In fact, commentators think that this is directly pointing to when Abraham walks up the mountain with Isaac and he's willing to sacrifice him. And it's one lamb. One lamb used to save effectively all of Israel. So the question is, 10,000 rams. If one ram can save all the descendants of Israel, why would... Why would 10,000 rams not be enough? Can you overdo it? Can we make this rote appeasement activity big and grand? 
And then, of course, he does the same thing with a river of virgin olive oil. And virgin olive oil is hugely expensive, and you get it in tiny jars, and you can only get it from the first olives of the season. And this idea of a river of it is absurd. And it reminds us, of course, not uh, of, that, of that woman who had that small jar of oil of perfume who poured it on Jesus' feet. And did, did she get attacked with Micah 6? Did they come at her and say, what are you doing? This cheap, meaning, meaningless worship. In fact, in that very text, the Pharisees stand around and almost quite quote Micah 6 to her and say, what are you doing? You should have saved this up and given the money to the poor. And this seems completely contradictory to what we read here. Because in fact, in this text, it's saying, don't bother with rivers of olive oil worry about the poor. So what's going on here? We need to see that this is not speaking against faithfully living out the full gospel as we encounter it. What it's speaking against is rote appeasement activities. Shrill statements of worship expressed not as relationship but simply to appease God. And I want to add to that list because I think it's important that we do Shrill cries of justice, of social justice. They're equally as defunct, right? Shrill and grand acts of social justice, equally defunct if they're not done fully and completely in relationship with God. So what is enough? What is enough? True child-father relationship. True suzerain suzerain vassal relationship. And I use that instead of king-subject because we have such a terrible concept of king and subject. A suzerain is really just a king, and a vassal is really just a subject. But when we use those words, what I'm hoping you get is this idea of a king committed to his people. Committed like the Yahweh we saw in those earlier verses who was committed to taking his people from slavery to the promised land. A, a, a suzerain, a king, who rules to see his people flourish. We are to be the subject who, who gets swept up into that story fully. Like the, the child swept up into the story of the, of the family narrative fully. Verse 8 B really makes it very clear. He has told you what is good. I told you in verses 1 to 6, be like me. And then he goes on to say, act justly. And he could easily have gone back to the Exodus law here and talked about how it's important for the court system to be honest and, justice, and just in Exodus 23, how fair treatments in the court was important for all people, but especially for those with limited resources to defend themselves, and that we needed to make special consideration for widows and orphans and other vulnerable people, Deuteronomy 24. He could have gone back to the law and made that case. And of course, I'm sure that many of them, as they heard that, had the same reaction that I have and as you had. Okay, but I can't fix our court system. I don't know what to do about that. And then he goes on to say, not just act justly, but love mercy. Where's Ashley? Love mercy. Do you know what that word is? It's your favorite word in it's Hesed, yes. 
It means loving kindness, covenantal loving kindness. And one of the ways to think about this, we saw a wedding a couple of weeks ago. You, you do the wedding vows, of course, and you, you have these notions of this delightful, romantic love sustaining you year after year after year. And then, of course, the reality is it wanes, it waxes, but always that covenant is there. You can find the joy if you work for it. But this chesed love is one that is just completely devoted. It's just running to. It's saying, what are my wedding vows and how can I do it? Because you are just so beautiful. You are just so... I'm just so captured by you. And it's like the word which many other people know, the other two words, the one Greek word and the one Hebrew word that people know, agape or agape, which means love in Greek. These are action words. This word chesed and this word agape, yes, they are captured with emotion, but ultimately they are talking about expressions of love which are connected and uh, uh, foundationally built into the covenant or the covenant they apply to. So imagine a wedding vow between a husband and a wife and the spouses are showing particular devotion to those vows. That's chesed. And God is saying, you need to show particular devotion towards the vows that you make to me as your people. And again, like you, I have probably the same reaction to you. Okay, that I can't solve systemic poverty. I don't know what to do. And we get to the third thing here. Walk humbly with your God. Two pieces of that, right? With your God. God needs to be our constant companion, our guide, our stay. We need to be grounded in him. We need to be practicing those disciplines of vertical integration. We need to be listening. We need to say, God, where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to go? We need to try to determine. We need to have humble Holy Spirit ears. We have to give up all pretense of self-sufficiency and rely on God as our help and our shield. And so this is actually where, the, where it begins for us because there is truth to those first two statements, right? We cannot fix our broken court system. We cannot solve systemic poverty, not individually. And honestly, we're probably never going to solve this problem. We are, I mean, not honestly, we are never going to solve this problem. The poor is going to be with us. There is always going to be systemic racism. But when we get to this last one, walk humbly with your God. I can choose not to minimize about it. I can choose not to lie about the violence of the city. I can choose to engage in corporate lament and corporate confession. Corporate confession and lament. That's where it begins. An act of worship of corporate confession and lament. That doesn't mean, as we said, that I am confessing that I am a racist. What that means is I live in a city and it is not the way it should be. There are unequal measures. There are court systems and school systems and financial systems that are stacked against certain groups in this country. And it's not okay. And I need to confess that as a citizen of this country and I need to lament about it. And you ask, well, how long? How long? As long as that's a problem. 
Because as we confess and as we lament, we start to move in the direction that we need to start moving to find the solutions. Now, I believe that everyone in this church wants to worship God in this way. Every one of you is willing to sacrifice a calf to pour out whatever oil you have and to oppose the use of scant measures and deceitful weights and unfair and wicked scales. And I don't believe this on blind faith. I believe this because I've seen it, right? I've seen it. I've seen you meet the needs of those that you come across. I've seen you meet the needs of people who've required meals to sustain them. I've seen you meet the needs of people who need help moving from house to house. I've seen you meet the needs of people who need lifts to airports or doctor's appointments. I've seen you help out with people who need money to get by. I've seen you throw bridal showers for one another. In fact, I've seen this church throw a wedding. And I've seen this church rock out with Asian worship and with African worship just in the last month alone. I've seen our diaconate give to those of the wider community who have had problems with rent or legal issues or problems meeting their sustenance needs. We, I believe, are pretty faithful and we want to address the injustice in front of us. We want to be merciful. How to address it? That's really the bigger problem that we have. Where to address it? These are our problems. Just the other day when I was talking to Dwayne about the youth of this church, he was saying, look, these, are, these guys are talking about this stuff. And they're making the question, I don't know where to find the problem. I just don't see it in front of me. And I think we all feel that. Right. So can I recap? Because I do want to show again where we're going in this series. Right? It's not okay to do nothing. This is not a new problem. The solution begins with faithful worship. It's so important for us to begin talking about the solution. We got to start having the head and the heart and the mind of Christ, of Yahweh. We need to be responding as people who say, okay, I live in a city and it's not the way it should be. My only, big, my only thing I can do right now, the starting place is definitely one of confession and lament. And then next week, we are going to start looking at how to engage and then in our final series, we're going to be looking at where to engage. So to conclude today, certainly we are not perfect at calf giving or oil pouring or being justice-seeking people. Certainly we can do better here at looking for those God is putting in front of us to bless. And I think we, we confess that and we, we do what we can to get better at those things. When the rhetoric gets high, Without walking humbly, it is really hard to see the nuance well. Radical conservatives want to defend the status quo. Radical liberals want to tear the system down. Both of these approaches are not gospel. They miss the gospel mark. True worship is distinguished, firstly, by not honoring the things that are structured to create disparity, but rather acknowledging the problem through ongoing corporate repentance and lamenting, and also by not despising 
the things that are good, but rather being active in finding our place in the solution. Micah 6 warns us to avoid the culpability either of either type of silence. True worship requires us to pray for, to see, and to be willing to be used as the master surgeon's scalpel. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we don't know what to do. But we do need to at least beginning by acknowledging that it's not okay. And that we need to do something. And it begins, all of this is worship, and it begins by us saying, we lament, we confess and we lament. Not because any of us particularly are racist, although I'm sure you can convict us in ways that we are, but because we live in a society which is broken and is systemically oppressing for some. The poor are getting poorer, the rich are getting richer. The justice system does not meet justice blindly. So many systems are not the way they should be and we need to confess that corporately and we need to lament that. And we need to then begin the process of listening where and how. How and where. Father, we pray over the next couple of weeks that you stay with us on this journey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.